Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you for instructing and directing us thus far in worship. We thank you for working and moving in the worship team, preparing our hearts, and we thank you for working in Kevin, that his prayer directed us to just how we need, we all need you. And now you have brought us to the highest height, to your word in which you will show to us our need for a Savior who has come, and his name is Jesus. Spirit, help us now that I may preach and my brothers and sisters may hear the same thing, the word which comes from you and only you, out of love for us, your children. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please turn with me to today's passage, Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32. We're continuing our series in the book of Romans, and we are finishing off chapter 1 today. You'll, it's light reading. You'll see. Uh, you'll find it in your Bibles, chapter, Romans chapter 1. It's after Acts and the Gospels, and it's also on the back of your sermon outline. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. May God bless this reading of his word. And it's a very sad and depressing sounding word to us this morning, isn't it? You know, Pastor John spoke last week of sin and God giving up humanity in two different ways. Uh, verse 24, they're a little hot, so on the mic, so if we can just turn, turn down just a little bit. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And then verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And so now, we come to a third and maybe worst way of giving humanity up. Now, when you hear this list, this sad, terrible list, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is hell. I mean, because any place where that's all that there is 24-7, nonstop, that's just got to be hell. But where on earth would we see something approximating this? Is there, can you think of any place? I think of prisons. You know, there may be other different ways of thinking of hell on earth, but I think of prison. And I'm not even just thinking American prisons. American prisons might be hard and bad, but I'm thinking like prisons in corrupt nations where anyone there, any prisoner there might stab you and kill you, but also just the wardens and the prison guards are evil themselves and out for their own good and abusive in their authority. And the laws of that country do not protect such people. 
are prisoners. And in fact, I think of Evin Prison in Iran, where Iranian-American pastor Saeed Abedini still languishes in prison over a year there because he is a Christian who has tried to bring the gospel to those in need. And so I hope that you will continue to pray for Pastor Abedini, as I do, and, as, and many others who are in that same exact situation. So those who are imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. You know, or gulags in North Korea, where Christians and political dissidents, their entire families are tossed in there, and they don't get to see each other, and they'll never see freedom or the light of day ever again. So does it sound like a prison to you too, Maybe? Or maybe some of you guys have a really just negative outlook on your college campus where it's just, wow, evil all the time, just parading itself proudly. Or your workplace where just people are just harsh and nasty and biting and vindictive. Or Facebook, I mean, where people just from their invulnerable armchairs and just and, uh, wherever they are can just spout off whatever they want with no consequences. Twitter. You know, just, or what's in your own heart. You know, just wherever you're thinking, you can agree with, and the first point of today's message is that it's not the way it's supposed to be. That's how Cornelius Plantinga put it in, uh, that's his, uh, the, his book titled that exact thing. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And to have an appreciation for the situation we're in, we have to consider what we've lost. If you've never experienced something good and you were told that you'll never get it, maybe it's not a big deal. But for us, the Bible lays out clearly what we've lost. Romans 1.28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You see, the precipitating reason for God giving them up is that they did not worship God as He alone deserves to be worshipped. So back, back then, there was a sane mind that wasn't deranged, and it worshipped God appropriately because that's the way that God created us to be. God filled up humanity with beautiful things, logic, reason, love, compassion, but the best thing that he gave to us was his image. He made us in his image. And so he knew what he was doing in commanding us to worship him. My beloved creature made in my image. If you will find satisfaction and happiness in this world and life, you will only find it in loving communion with me. And so his command to obey him was a command, not of onerous restriction, but of love. But instead, like an unfaithful spouse, humanity turns away from God to the counsel, to the voice of another. Adam and Eve did evil by disobeying in the garden. But then it didn't really take long for things to spin completely out of control, did it? The first child, Cain, kills the second child, Abel. And by Noah's day, God laments that in creating mankind because all mankind did was evil all day long. C.S. Lewis actually summarizes it really well in this sad sentence. All that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, 
prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Wow, I think he captures it perfectly. And so when we turn on the news and see shootings on campuses and war in the world and the obscenity of human trafficking and other atrocities, we can agree with Plantiga that it's not the way it's supposed to be. But what did we give up and lose in what God intended? You know, just, I, I went to a thesaurus, looked up antonyms, and did this. I reversed all the words. So look at your passage, all right, from verse 29 on, but listen to what, how I'm, what I'm saying. Filled with all manner of righteousness, goodness, contentment, benevolence, full of satisfaction, love, peace, honesty, goodness. They are truth-tellers, protectors of others' reputations, lovers of God, polite, humble, modest, inventors of good, obedient to parents, wise, faithful, compassionate, merciful. Doesn't that just sound like the kind of place that you'd like to live and be a part of? And that's what God intended for us. Complete relationship with God and with each other. And that's where we could be, but Romans 1 is where we are. That was the great, wonderful way that it should be, but this is the way it is. And we have to have been insane to, given, to have given that society up. And now we have what you have before you. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. And all those terrible things. And with tears we consider what we lost. So Milton wrote it right in Paradise Lost. And now, like a prison... We live forever fearful, not knowing what side danger can come from. The enemy is all around. And we see how God in his original plan, which first Peter quotes in 1 Peter, he was quoting in uh, Leviticus, it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That this was his standard. And it was a good standard and we would have flourished under that standard. We would have lived fantastically, but we lost all that. Now, brothers and sisters, we spend a lot of time grieving this sin happening around us as if the great enemy we were dealing with so it was outside of us. But the second point of the message is, do you grieve your sin? Do you grieve the sin that is within you? Is outside of us where the true enemy lies? Or is the danger we are in found inside of us? Because in this passage, the Apostle Paul is saying that this is not just what is out there. This is what is in here. And for that, we should grieve. 
You know, he tells this to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians 12.20. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. There's, it's almost a little humorous what he's saying there, that they're going to be worse than he hopes, and his anger is going to be what they just uh, didn't expect or want. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Sounds kind of familiar. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Who is Paul writing to in Romans and in 2 Corinthians? Isn't it the church? Isn't it Christians that he is writing these very words to? And through the Holy Spirit, Paul is writing to you and to me. It would be really easy to read that, li- that terrible list of sins and think that it's only talking about the really bad sins. Oh, murder, inventing evil, faithlessness, and strife. And it's a good thing that God's against those things. I'm against them too. But I think that's why Paul decided to include things like disobedience to parents. And you have to think, wait a second. I'm lumped in with those people? What I do is, I mean, come on. God has to grade us on a, on a, on a curve, right? I mean, you know, you're in college, and you love, oh, I know you love the curve. You know, just, and, uh, yeah, I pointed at you. Um, you know, just where a 60 could be an A, right? Just, oh, I just love those days. So, or, you know, you always hated the curve wrecker, the one person who just made it, no, the, it's a 100% an A, that's, and so everyone hated him or her. It's usually a her. It can't be right that God treats all of us and considers all of our sin the same way. Surely there's a scale, a curve, right? So back to the prison idea. You know, if you ever find yourself locked up in prison, I don't really see that as a concern for most of you. So, but if you do find yourself in prison, what do you do? You find out the pecking order. You find out, man, who are the really bad criminals. You find out who to stay away away from, all right? You stay away from the murderers and the rapists, all right, and the violent assault people. And you find maybe the embezzlers, all right, so the white-collar crime people, right, people who you don't have to worry as much about. And you find maybe who you can be allies with, who your skin color will let you get in with. And in prison, you either minimize your crime or you justify it. You minimize it by saying, it really wasn't that bad a crime, or if real minimization, I didn't do it. I'm innocent. Or you justify it by saying, he had it coming. He deserved what I did to him. And we think that sin works that way. That surely any disobedience against God can't be the same as all disobedience against God. 
God must grade on a curve, right? But here's the thing. Regardless of whether you think there's a curve, whether you're minimizing your sin or justify it by saying that any person would have done the same thing in the same situation, at the end of it all, we're still stuck in a prison we deserve. None of us are innocent Andy Dufresne in the movie Shawshank Redemption. We're all there because we belong. Which is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6.11. And such were some of you. Do you grieve your sin? Do you see this list and see you in it? Because if you do, there's joy to be had. If you can take this list and own it and say, this represents me. I am in here. Then you can begin to hate it. The evil and the consequences both. You can say that this is mine and I hate it. And there is grace in that view. You have a truthful look, an outlook on yourself where you're not deluding yourself anymore. And that's what C.S. Lewis actually says. I've got some Lewis quotes today. C.S. Lewis says in this, uh, this sentence, Prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. Because what prostitute would say that they've got it made? The proud, the avaricious, the self-righteous are in that danger. When you can see the situation that you are in, and you're part, you're belonging to it, you can at least see that truth and mourn and grieve. The ones who won't admit it that they are the people that Paul is describing here, they're the very ones of danger of not turning to God. But believe it or not, in this passage, as bad as it's gotten, it gets worse. Romans 1.32, though they know, and in that word, Paul is referring back to verses 19 and 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Paul is saying that God revealed himself in creation so that no one has any excuse whatsoever No one can say, oh, I didn't know God was out there. I didn't know he cared. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It's like saying God, God, that Paul is saying that God has given us up to a depraved mind and thoughts and deeds and doing these things is this. But we, don't, we, we didn't even get our bachelor's there. We got our PhD in this sin. Because we don't just do it. We stand in approval of those who do. Paul is remembering Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Do you see that progression? There's the walking, and then the standing, and the sitting. And Paul is saying this is what we do. In rejection of the one true God and in turning and worshiping false gods, we see the height of it as those who mock and scoff at the righteous people of God and God himself. And we give approval to those who practice evil as well. And in many ways, 
All right, I said Facebook and Twitter. I hate social media. Really, I do. If you wonder why you don't see cute pictures of Abby and Ethan on my Facebook page, it's because I hate Facebook. All right? In fact, I'm only on there to keep track of you people. So, and it's not that those things are evil. Any more than a gun in itself is evil. It's people who wield it. They get to project their vomitous evil out there so easily. It's like everyone has a thousand-watt megaphone and can use it whenever they want. There are laws against that kind of thing. I wish there were laws against Facebook. If you see something heinous and someone posts it on Twitter or Reddit, thousands of anonymous people will jump on and give approval to what they've seen Oh, man, that wasn't a crime. You just, you know, it's a, you deserve to do what you did. Or, hey, did you see this person make that mistake? That'll just never, ever be unwritten and erased for as long as the Internet lives. Or let's take off uh, my pressure on social media. Let's go to Pornography. You know, something like this feels like a secret sin, right? And so, and so it's a harmless one, right? And yet if you go to an organization like Somebody Else's Daughter who advocates for women caught in the sex, indus- uh, sex industry, you know, and fights against human trafficking, they will say that there is no such thing as a harmless sin. All sin will harm someone else along with your relationship with God. And if there's a market, you know, basic supply and demand, a market for people to be objectified and trafficked, then evil people will find others to victimize, to supply, to meet that demand. And so with a mouse click, you give approval to those who practice evil. And Paul is not leaving himself out of this at all. He is talking about his life story. We first meet Paul as Saul in Acts chapter 7, all right, Stephen, one of the first deacons of the church, is hauled out by angry Jewish leaders who are saying, you are blaspheming against God in saying that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and Stephen just preaches this wonderful message of the redemption that we have in Christ. And they cry out. They're not swayed. And these leaders, the Jewish leaders, cry blasphemy and they stone him. And what is Saul doing? What is Saul doing as Stephen cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not hold their sin against him. As Stephen was showing the love and the words of our Savior on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Saul was by their coats. Apparently you take off your coat when you stone someone. Standing by their coats and... Saul, chapter 8, verse 1, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Saul approved of his execution, kicking off the massive persecution of the church. Paul is including himself as those among this list because all humanity finds itself here in this passage deserving to die. We minimize our sin. We justify it. And then we stand in approval of those that also do evil against God. 
And so it's that cartoonist, Walt Kelly, quote, who drew Pogo, we have met the enemy, and he is us. Man, that quote fits a lot better for sin than it does for Earth Day. But now we have to fast forward a bit to find where our hope is. Because as we're serially preaching through Romans, we're going to come to places where, oh, wait a second, what's the answer? What's the answer? And if we ended just at verse 32, we're just kind of left, all right, have a good day. If you can, try not to kill yourself this week because life sucks and it just should be over. Our hope is not mentioned right here explicitly. But we see that God is our only hope. In fact, that Christ is our only hope, which brings us to the last point. And I want to, there's a song that we're going to sing for closing. And in the second verse, this beautiful song just captures it so perfectly. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice. Call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. See, in our passage today, Paul is setting up the answer that we can't wait to get to. But we get to that answer every week at our church because the answer is always Jesus. How do we overcome this great body of sin? How do we have eternal life and escape from that prison of judgment? And we turn to how Paul started us off in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness of God is revealed and his name is Jesus. He is our hope. Something happens here when you acknowledge the serious magnitude of your sin, when you see that you have sinned against the infinite God himself. You can't minimize it any longer. You can't say, it's such a little sin, how can God care? Because you realize you sinned that little sin against the infinite God, and that's what makes it infinitely wrong, and why your judgment and your evil is so great. But when you grieve, when you mourn that sin against God, you can see two things, two things that John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, remember he was a slave trader who came to Christ, wrote Amazing Grace, and then worked for the rest of his life toward the abolition of slavery that he participated in before. And he says this, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. 
I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Newton is thinking about something Jesus said in Luke chapter 7. When a woman comes to Jesus, Jesus is dining in the house of Simon the Pharisee, and this woman comes weeping and just pours herself over Jesus' feet. And Simon the Pharisee is thinking, I wonder what Jesus is going to do. I wonder if he knows what kind of woman is touching him right now. And Jesus, knowing our thoughts, he says, Simon, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. It's about a year's worth of pay versus a month's worth, worth of pay. When they could not pay, he canceled a debt, the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. See, Jesus is giving us a formula here. If you're going to be grateful for Jesus, you have to know what you are grateful for. That's why Lewis's quote, or I'm sorry, the one who calls Jesus Savior without considering seriously what Jesus saves us from cannot appreciate the value of that great salvation. Just like the one who doesn't admit he's in prison can't appreciate the value of being free. That's why Lewis's quote earlier about prostitutes makes sense. Those who see their sin and taste and find that that bile, that poison is theirs, who see that the wages of sin is death and death is what they deserve, they are the ones who can turn to God. I didn't finish 1 Corinthians 6.11. It doesn't stop at, and such were some of you. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. See, brothers and sisters, to the degree that we mourn and grieve our sin, that's the degree that we will rejoice in thankfulness and love at Jesus' words on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. If you've never asked what is finished, then on what basis do you say that you know and love Jesus? That's why we ought to love him for those words and for what he did for us on the cross. But unless you draw the connection between what you have done and who you are to what he has done and who he is, you can't value Jesus Christ and the cross.
And so you'd be like the one who only had 50 denarii of debt. Instead of recognizing that you are nothing but debt, deserving of death, and it is for your sin that Christ came to die. And Jesus came. Jesus came so that we would live in a prison no longer, but be free. See, this prison metaphor isn't mine. It's Jesus's. John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. No longer in a prison of your own making and deserving. Everyone... Because the Son of God sacrificed His own life so that you and I could be counted as sons and daughters, free indeed. And how do we characterize that freedom? What does it look like when we are living out and embracing that freedom? This is going to sound familiar. With righteousness, good, contentment, benevolence, Fullness of satisfaction, love, peace, honesty, goodness. They are truth-tellers, protectors of others' reputations, lovers of God, polite, humble, modest, inventors of good, obedient to parents, wise, faithful, compassionate, merciful. How do we have all of this now? How is it ours? Well, who does this sound like? Yeah, that's right. There's only one, Jesus. The one who is and embodied all these things and poured himself, all of himself, out for us on the cross so that we could have what only he deserves. And now he calls us to live as those who are free. Because of him, we can now acknowledge God and worship him and live in the hope of Christ. Now let me end by saying, if this is new to you, if you've never considered the depth of your sin and great salvation that is offered in Jesus Christ, I invite you to speak with me or one of the elders because we want you to know the glorious joy that we have in Jesus Christ. And if you already have this, I want you to go and live this joy and freedom out. And the best way that you can live that out is by telling it to others. Because there's nothing that makes you appreciate your freedom than trying to bring that freedom to those who still live in slavery. I'll end with this last quote from C.S. Lewis again. It's in uh, the reflection in your bulletin, not the outline. When he said, be perfect, he meant it. He meant that we must go in for the full treatment. It is hard. 
But the sort of compromise we are all hankering after is harder. In fact, it is impossible. It may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird. It would be a jolly sight harder for it to learn to fly while remaining an egg. We are like eggs at present. And you cannot go on indefinitely being just an ordinary decent egg. We must be hatched or go bad. We cannot live with one foot in the prison thinking that we can still have some part of that old life. Christ has set us free from that prison, from that bondage, from death into eternal life, which he calls us to live out even now. Let us look to our Savior, our only hope constantly, as we look daily at the depth of our sin and see that he has turned our mourning into gladness. Let us pray.